All right. Now, if you got your Bibles, flip open to Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3, and then we're going to continue our study, 2 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, for any of you who are with us through the pandemic, you know part of the cool thing about starting at the top of a passage and working your way down uh, is the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, and we've watched all these amazing, beautiful twists and turns that have gone along with everything happening around us in the culture, uh, and again, we're able to watch the Word of God just beautifully navigate it. And so today is, uh, is no different. I started working on this sermon series, I think it was February or March of 2020. 20. Uh, and so the sermon that you're getting to hear today uh, was the one that we had on the docket just when we got to it, uh, going through verse by verse through the passage. And so there is no tack hammer today. This is just what the Lord uh, had for us. And so it starts with this question. Have you ever felt like you were walking through a difficult season before? You ever felt like you were walking through a difficult season? Uh, just a time of trouble where you're still making it, but man, it just feels like uh, it's a tough go for you. Sometimes it can be that way at work. Sometimes it can certainly be that way at home. Uh, sometimes it can just be that way walking across the street, but you just feel like the path that you're walking right now is difficult. Some of you are like, no way, man. Life is good, all right? If that's you, then good for you, all right? Well done. But man, uh, we learn in scripture that trouble comes. And so I want to encourage you, if you're going through a difficult season, great session to take notes on. Uh, and if you're not going through a difficult season, great chance for you to have a reminder for what could be ahead in the future. Um, I'll never forget, difficult season for me, um, played football my senior year in high school. And uh, uh, if you've ever played uh, high school athletics, you're working towards your senior year. And so everything is about kind of building. That's when you're at your physical peak, you know, for your high school years. That's also when you've had plenty of time in the system. And right before my senior year, uh, we had a coaching change. And so we had a major shift in the offense and the defense that we'd been running on our football team. And so we get to the last senior year. And we've got a brand new coach. Um, we had a whole bunch of players that quit because we lost a rivalry game to a team that we should not have lost to. So kind of famously, it was even in the city newspapers because all these players had quit uh, at the end of the game. And uh, we had no shot at the playoffs. And the last game of the season, the last game of my entire uh, uh, football career was against Amarillo High, all right, uh, which uh, for those of you playing our home game, was the number one team in our conference. They were the ones that would go the furthest for our entire region. So we're playing Amarillo High in that final game. And it was just like, man, could it be any worse? I mean, it was tough to get out uh, and to go out on the field because it was just like, man, I, do we want to do this? New coach, players have quit, no shot at the playoffs, and we're going to get beat up by the best team in the conference? I mean, should we really even try? Um, I'll never forget our coach sharing with us, uh, our FCA rep sharing with us, Colossians chapter 3, verse 23. If you don't have this verse memorized, you absolutely should in this city. Colossians 3, 23 says this, whatever you do. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as you are working for the Lord and not for men. If you've got a situation where you have to walk a difficult path and it truly is one of those days where you just go, man, I feel like I can't win. Whenever there's a possibility for us to win, that makes it a little bit easier to walk through a difficult day because you still have something to strive for. Some of these days you walk out and you just go, man, Lord, my best still seems like it's going to come up way, way short. Should I even try when the enemy whispers in your ear, should I even try? Colossians 3.23 is the verse that we throw back in his face. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart. Why? Because we're not living our lives for the crowd. We're not living our lives for the praise. At the end of the day, we are living our lives for an audience of one. Because at the end of the day, God is the one we will stand before in how we've lived our lives. 
Tell you a crazy story. Uh, for some of you who've been a part of our Strand Discipleship class, uh, you've heard this story before. It's, uh, it's kind of one of the foundational stories for that class uh, and the idea of living our lives for the Lord above all else. Uh, but uh, every now and again, it fits the sermon. So here you go. All right. Um, so back in the day, I had felt called to ministry, uh, like uh, I wanted to, uh, to preach with my life, that uh, that was going to be my career. And I'll never forget, I went to my dad, who also was a preacher, and I said, Dad, have you got any opportunities uh, for me to preach, any settings where I could, uh, where I could go and, uh, and preach? And I'll never forget, my dad's question to me right after, after that was, well, son, have you written a sermon? And I looked at him and I was like, well, you know, if I had a sermon or if I had a, if I had a congregation to speak to, then I would write the sermon. I said, you want to preach to the crowd, right, Dad? He goes, eh, not exactly. He goes, not your first time. He said, if you'll write a sermon, then God will give you a place to preach it. So I thought, well, that's interesting. All right, I'll sit down and I'll do it. So I sat down and I wrote a sermon on Jesus feeding the 5,000. That was the first sermon uh, that I ever wrote. And um, sadly, no one just called me out of the blue and asked me if I would preach it to them, all right? But I've got this sermon. I've got this sermon written. And then all of a sudden, one day, my parents lived in Frisco, Texas at the time. And uh, they lived right next to a deal called the Warren Sports Complex, a whole bunch of soccer fields out there uh, by their house. And I'll never forget, one day I'm driving to their house and I feel this kick in my gut. And then all of a sudden an idea drops in my head that I am supposed to preach in that field. It's like the voice of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you get a kick and then all of a sudden an idea that you never could have thought of on your own, uh, the Spirit's revelation. And so I'm sitting there, it was just like, I don't want to preach in that field. That would be weird. Why would I do that? And yet, I feel this fist in my gut like it's something that I am truly supposed to do. And so I had been saying to God, this is the disciples' prayer, God, I'll do whatever you want me to do. And if you're going to give your life to ministry and say, Lord, I, I want to do this for my, I want to do this with all of my being for you, well, again, you're going to be prepared for some, some crazy little moments. And so I have that kick in my gut. So I'm still a very rational person. So I decided I was going to wait until it was dark outside and no one else was around. And so I went out to this field, the Warren Sports Complex. I'm carrying my Bible. And I don't know what I thought, like the people were just going to come out of the woodwork and listen, you know, but I just walk out. I'm carrying my Bible. I feel in my spirit like it was something I was supposed to do. And so I walk out and I remember the very first thing I said was, thank you all for coming today. All right. You know, I just got this present. I've never preached before. Thank you all for coming today. Well, at that moment, I realized, what are you doing, man? Who is, who are you preaching to? Who are you talking to? There was a set of clouds above, and the clouds began to part, and I remember I looked up, and there was this just beautiful, bright star just shining down. And I had this feeling over me that came over me that was just, the Lord is here. He's with me. He's the one who I'm talking to. He's the one who's listening, and he lives within me. It just was the most beautiful moment. I realized he was there. He was always there, but I realized he was there. And I remember I'm preaching, and I preached... Do you remember when Jesus fed the 5,000 and I stopped and I was like, do you remember when you fed the 5,000? Remember when you took the five loaves and the two pieces of fish? You remember when you spoke peace over the crowd? It just caused me to cry, just the feeling of the presence of God. In fact, it's the reason why, for some of you, praying out loud is no different than praying in your mind to God. The Lord hears all of it, but the act of faith and saying it out loud is this act of faith in acknowledging he is with me. So finally, I finished the sermon. It was really short. And when I finish, a police car pulls up. And I remember thinking, maybe he's going to get saved. You know I mean? Whatever it is, right? <laughs> so the police car pulls up. And when the car pulls up, he leans over and he goes, are you okay, young man? 
And I remember I lifted up my Bible and I go, I'm just preaching in the field, sir. And then the police officer says back to me, any way you can do that at home? And I was like, yep, I can do that at home. And so I get in the car, drive back to my parents' house. It's late at this point. And I've had this experience. And so it was kind of like a letdown at that point. Because it was like, all right, this was really cool. I had this beautiful moment, but eh, this was off, you know. So I get back to the house. And when I get to the house, my dad was there that night. He traveled all the time. And he was there that particular night. And he was up watching cowboy shows. And I remember I looked over. I was like, Dad, uh, what are you doing up? And he goes, what are you doing out so late? And I go, oh, you don't want to know. He goes, I, I do want to know. Where have you been? I was like, the Lord told me to preach in a field. He goes, What? I said, yeah, I know, it's just feeling in my gut, this deal in my mind. I said, you told me to write a sermon, then God would give me a place to preach it. He goes, how'd it go? I said, he was beautiful. I said, the presence of God so all around me was so real. And he goes, when I was your age, God called me to preach in a field too. I said, no way. He said, I was driving in a white pickup truck through Vera, Texas on Highway 82. He said, I felt the spirit kick that I needed to preach in this cornfield that was off to the side. He said, I pulled over in Vera, Texas, pulled down the tailgate of the pickup truck, and he said, I preached in the midst of the cornfield. I said, what happened to you? He said, the Spirit spoke to me and said, if you'll do this for just me, then I'll take you to do it for thousands. And that's what he did with his career. He got to preach all over the world. If you're taking notes, once you write this down, are you ready if you don't take anything else away from today? At the end of it all... You are living your life for an audience of one. Let me say that again. At the end of it all, you are living your life for an audience of one. Not for the approval of others around you. Not so that their perception of you would be that you are godly. But at the end of the day, you are living your life for an audience of one. And you will stand before God on what you have done. And whether or not the shed blood of Jesus Christ covers you is going to be the most important aspect of eternity. Just for the record, Billy Graham had the same experience, preached in the field. Now, because he was Billy Graham, like all these people showed up and got saved, all right? That's just the way it works, right? Okay? But uh, I'm telling you, we live our life for an audience of one. So when we're going on a difficult path, when we're going through times of true difficulty, when it feels like God has called us to do something that makes us feel uncomfortable... We're going to address today who we can expect to encounter on that path. If you're taking notes, our big million-dollar question, who can we expect to encounter when God calls us to walk a difficult path? Now flip over to 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 16. 2 Samuel, starting in chapter 16. And we're going to start in verse 1, continuing our story. Remember, uh, David, Absalom, is marching on the capital there in Jerusalem. David, instead of fighting to keep his position as king, has said to his son uh, through his actions, it's all yours, you take it. Uh, the division in the country, the, uh, the division in our family, the division in the palace itself, he looks and just says, I don't want innocent people to get hurt. Uh, the godliest thing I can do at this point is to walk away. And so David's walking away, and we've been going through that uh, study this, uh, this past stretch. Well, now... Now we get to 2 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. David's doing what God's told him to do, but it's not easy. If you're in this season, this is a great passage for you, all right? How, who can we expect to encounter when God calls us to walk a difficult path? Four individuals that we're going to meet with today. Are you ready? Look at 2 Samuel 16, starting in verse 1. 
It says, when David had gone a short distance beyond the summit. Underline, when he'd gone a short distance beyond the summit. He has just gone beyond uh, the Mount of Olives. He's gone past the top of the hillside there in Jerusalem, and he's outside the city limits. So this is just right after he gets outside those city limits. There was Ziba. Underline, there was Ziba. The steward of Mephibosheth waiting to meet him. He had a string of donkeys saddled and loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 cakes of raisins, 100 cakes of figs, and a skin of wine. David then says, the king then asked Ziba, why'd you bring me these things? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the fruit are for the men to eat. And the wine is to refresh those who become exhausted in the desert. Stop right there for just a minute. Whenever uh, we, uh, who can we expect to encounter when God calls us to walk a difficult path? Number one is the helpful. Whenever God calls you to walk a path of difficulty, it will not be filled exclusively with difficulty. There are going to be some bright spots, some beautiful moments that the Lord provides to let you know that he is with you and that you are not alone. Remember, your life is lived for that audience of one. But God himself is not completely alone. There are believers in Christ all over surrounding us. It's one of the reasons why if you're from a place that's not Washington, every now and again you get that call from the person where you're from where they're like, are there any Christians up there in Washington? They don't call it Washington. It's Washington, right? Are there any Christians up there in Washington? And you look at there and you go, yeah, a ton. We meet on Sunday. There are hundreds of us that gather just at our church. And they, I don't believe it. I'm telling you, there's <laughs> godly people all over. The Lord has operatives everywhere. Now listen to me. When you're going through a difficult journey, make sure that you give God glory when he provides encouragement from a source you weren't expecting. You're good people. I don't think that you have a problem saying thank you when somebody helps you. But to stop and to not only thank that person, but to look and to give glory to God because he's reminded you that he was there in the midst of the difficulty is a powerful thing for us to do. Proverbs 18, 12, one of my favorite little verses right now, says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. The image in that verse, that hope deferred, it just makes you sick to your stomach. When you've hoped for something and it didn't come together. But when a longing is fulfilled, it's like a tree that every season, every fall produces fruit. Isn't that beautiful? You can go to it over and over and over again. And that's what happens here for David. What Ziba does here is not just for the moment. What Ziba does will be celebrated all the way into eternity. The helpful. If you're taking notes, a little quote here for you. God often uses timely, unexpected encouragement to boost our confidence and remind us that we are not alone. God often uses timely, unexpected encouragement to boost our confidence and remind us that we are not alone. One of the most difficult paths I ever walked was quitting a job without another job. Without telling you the long version of that story, I quit, um, turned in my two weeks notice, and uh, I think the group that I quit with was very worried what I was going to say in that final two weeks. And so, um, again, I caught them off guard. I'd been bullied, and so if any of you ever been in a situation work-wise where you've been bullied to the point where you just go, I'm done, godliest thing I can do is walk away. By the way, I very rarely encourage people to do that. I did it once, and it caused me all sorts of psychological trauma moving forward. Quitting without another job is really, really brutal. But this situation, I'd still do it 100 times out of 100. I'll never forget, after it was over, 
I get a call from my two direct bosses who were scared to death. I was going to slander them and, and, and cause all sorts of problems. And so they started to bully me one last time on the phone. And they were like, you're just going to sit there while we wait. You got two weeks left on the job, but you're just going to sit there while we run things. And if you say anything, then we're going to da 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 just all this stuff. And I'm telling you, I was strong on the phone, but I just felt like a puppy dog had been swatted on the nose just over and over again. And I'm telling you, I just kind of was backed into a corner. Well, I'll never forget, I had to go back to my house to pick up a few things in my lunch hour. And I just was so beat up. I went to my house I curled up into a corner, and I just began to pray. I was like, Lord, I don't know. I just don't know. I feel like this was the right thing to do. I just can't take much more of this abuse. And right around that time, I start to cry. And a guy named Dan Lyles calls, just out of the blue. Dan and I hadn't talked in months. He was the music minister at the church that I was at before this one. And Dan Lyles called. And when I pick up the phone, I just go, hello, hello. And I get this lump in my throat. I was so sad. I couldn't even speak. I go, hello, hello. And then, I mean, I just start to cry. I'll never forget, Dan's on the other line, and he goes, are you okay, Zach? Are you okay? Do I need to call the police? And I just go, no, no, but I can't even get anything out. And he goes, I will pray for you. And he just starts praying just the most beautiful prayer while he's on the other line. I mean, it was just this heaven-sent, beautiful moment, and he just prays and prays and prays, and I'm just, oh. I couldn't even say goodbye to him at the end. He gets done praying, and he's like, I guess I'm going to go, you know, and he just kind of hung up the phone. That moment, I thank Dan for calling, but the Lord sent him. He was a sentinel of encouragement, and on that particular day, I needed it so desperately. I got a call afterwards from the head of the personnel committee, and uh, the head of the personnel committee said, uh, just right after Dan prayed for me, said, uh, they're telling me that they want to basically stick you in a corner for the last two weeks. And the chairman of the personnel committee said, you described this whole situation as a nightmare. And he said, I think we should end this nightmare for you. He goes, we're not going to make you go sit up there for two weeks and take this abuse. It was crazy. The Lord had relief on the other side. But the days of walking that brutal path, some of you have been there. The days of walking that brutal path, I thank God for Dan Lyles calling me. And the Lord was the one who sent him. It begs the question, have you received any unexpected encouragement? Have you received any unexpected encouragement? And if so, thank God for it. Thank the person, but make sure you give God the glory because he's the one who sent it. Now look at the next part. Look at 2 Samuel, and let's read verses, uh, let's read verses 3 and 4. Look at what happens next. So Ziba says, I brought this stuff for you. Well, then the king says, where's your master's grandson? Ziba then said to him, he goes, where's Mephibosheth? Remember, Mephibosheth is the one who is from Saul's family, the previous administration. And even though David could have treated him really badly, David treats Mephibosheth really well. I mean, this is the moment. Ziba shows up. He gives him some of the stuff from Mephibosheth's house. And the king then says, hey, where's Mephibosheth? And then Ziba goes, uh, he's staying in Jerusalem because he thinks today the house of Israel will give me back my grandfather's kingdom. 
It says, then the king said to Ziba, then David says to Ziba, all that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. Underline that. All that belonged to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba says, I humbly bow. Ziba says, may I find favor in your eyes, my lord, the king. So Mephibosheth, David didn't have to be nice to him, but he was nice to him anyway. His father was the one who was king in Israel. David worked for him. And then Saul's the one, his, uh, the grandfather's the one who chases, him out of, uh, who chases him out of Israel for a time, chases him to the crags. So David's been so good to Mephibosheth when he didn't have to be. And all of a sudden, here's David on his darkest day. Ziba shows up to encourage him. And then Mephibosheth goes, ah, yes, now the house of Saul will rise again. It's ridiculous. There's no way. But on this particular day, what Mephibosheth done, someone who David has been good to, has been very hateful to him. If you're taking notes, write this down. Who can we expect to encounter when God calls us to walk a difficult path? Number one's the helpful, and number two is the hateful. Number two is the hateful. There are some of you that anytime you come across hate of any kind as believers in Jesus Christ, you are shocked and appalled that anyone would stand in the way of your journey. Now look at me. Jesus repeatedly says that you will face persecution, that you will face trials of many kinds. And yet, whenever we come across it, it shakes our faith to the core. Why would God let that happen to me? I'm his favorite. Why would God let that happen to me? If he truly was for me, then why would this be allowed to take place? You need to remember the hateful. When we walk a difficult path, the enemy sends them our way. Don't be shocked when a hateful person shows up in your office. And the way this city works... I mean, when you're down, there is always somebody there to put their head or put their foot on your head and to push you down into the mud. It's just the way that this city works. Don't be shocked when that shows up. Now, it's not okay, but don't be surprised when you encounter. Is that a good word? Begs the statement. When hurtful people, or excuse me, uh, don't believe the devil's lies that everyone is against you, but don't be naive enough to assume everyone you know is for you either. All right? Don't believe the devil's lies that everyone is against you, but don't be naive enough to assume that everyone you know is for you either. No better example of this than Judas at the Last Supper. Judas shares bread with Jesus. He shares the dipping bowl, not COVID friendly, but he shares the dipping bowl with Jesus. They would have shared the cup that Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for you. They would have shared the cup together. And then all of a sudden, just hours after that, just hours after that amazing heavenly affirmation, all of a sudden we come to a point where Judas comes up and says, I don't just want to betray him. I want to betray him in front of all the other disciples. I want to kiss him on the cheek and I want 30 pieces silver to do it. Do you remember why 30 pieces of silver is important? That was the going rate for a slave. He looks at Jesus through that amount and says, I own you and I control you. You don't control me. The word that comes to mind is betrayal. Have you had some people in your life that betrayed you? I want to encourage you. It's going to happen. It's just the way it goes. It's going to happen. In fact, if you want to write down this question, you can. Has someone you've been good to betrayed you? Has someone you've been good to betrayed you? It does not change the mission that God has called you to. When the hateful show up, it does not change the mission that God has called you to, even though, man, they know how to twist the knife. Remember what Jesus says? 
It even it doesn't catch the Son of God off guard. It's almost like the pain of it catches Jesus off guard when he goes, Judas, you betray me with a kiss. Oh, could you really do that to me after these three years that we've spent together? I mean, it's not that it catches him off guard. It's almost like, man, that one hurt. That dart stuck. It doesn't change the mission. For Jesus, it didn't change that he was going to the cross, that he would be resurrected, and that he would be our salvation. None of that has changed, even though you've been betrayed. Some of you need to forgive those people and not allow them to have power over you. The hateful are going to show up, but notice what David does. David goes, yeah, uh, Ziba, whatever it was I gave to him, it's yours now, all right? What David does there is not hateful. What David does is go, well, I guess he was never on our team. Ziba, thanks for bringing it for us. Now it's yours. Now look at what happens next. Verses, uh, chapter 16, verses 5 through 8. Crazy little verses here. You ready? Verses, verse 5. It says, As the king approached Baharim, a man from the same clan as Saul's family, again, one of this, uh, the party of Saul, this is when we rise up. Look at what he says. From the clan of Saul's family came out there. His name was Shimei, son of Gera. And he cursed David as he came out. And he pelted David and all the king's officials with stones. Though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right, and uh, though all the troops and the special guard were on David's right and David's left. As he cursed, Shimei said, Get out! Get out, you man of blood, you scoundrel! The Lord has repaid you for all the blood you shed in the household of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. The Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. You have come to ruin because you are a man of blood. What the Lord, or what happens here, is on the journey as the Lord has led David to advocate the throne, all of a sudden we come across a troll, all right? The troll shows up. And the troll goes, ah, regime change. David, who was so powerful and so strong. David, who succeeded Saul, who I enjoyed his political party more than the new political party. I'm going to pelt him with stones as he walks by. David has an entire army around him. And it's one dude throwing stones, throwing dirt. And I'm telling you, it is incredibly bothersome. But the troll has no power. You hear me? The troll has no power. Who can we expect to encounter when God calls us to walk a difficult path? Number one is the helpful. Number two is the hateful. And number three is the hurtful. It's the hurtful. This guy is not just saying things. He is adding body language to it. If you're taking notes, we'll quote here for you. When hurtful people follow you, pity them because they truly have nothing better to do. Let me say that again. When hurtful people follow you, Pity them because they truly have nothing better to do. I've given you guys a whole bunch of Lord of the Rings illustrations recently. I got one more for you. In fact, it's so interesting. I, I highly believe that J.R.R. Tolkien, when he wrote, uh, when he wrote uh, Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, uh, that he would have taken from a lot of this Old Testament study on kingships and whatnot when he did. Do you remember the very first time Frodo and Gandalf come across Gollum? Okay, Gollum in the Hobbit is the, you know, the, my precious guy. His entire life is about that ring. And it says that it causes him to have a long life, but his greed, his lust for power, his lust for that ring has caused him just to become this, this creature uh, that dwells in the shadows. You remember the scene? Gandalf is sitting next to Frodo and Gandalf looks over and they're in this cave and he goes, we aren't alone. We're being followed. And do you remember? Frodo looks and sees the creature Gollum begin to crawl wall side. And I remember, all of a sudden, Frodo looks and he goes, it's a pity 
Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Do you remember that line? And then Gandalf, who always serves as kind of the voice of reason. Tolkien would later say that those were kind of his own thoughts going through, uh, going through the book. Gandalf then says, pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Do you remember that? He said, Gollum may still have a part to play before all this is done. Now, don't miss this. You remember how it all ends? By the way, spoiler alert, you had all this time to see that movie, all right? <laughs> Do you remember? Gollum, after following through the whole stretch, Frodo should have to throw himself into the lava in order to destroy the ring. But because Gollum's there and his lust for the ring is so heavy, he then rips the ring off of Frodo's finger and dives into the lava himself so Frodo is able to live. Don't miss this. Pity is not feeling like you are better than someone else. Pity is when you got a troll stepping back and going, instead of my emotional reaction to hate this person because they've hated me, is to instead stop and step back and pity them because they need Jesus. Because they have no peace and they have nothing better to do than to troll you while you're going through a difficult stretch and a difficult journey. It begs this question, are you being followed by a hurtful person, and should you pity them? Are you being followed by a hurtful person, and should you pity them? Not feel like you're better than them, but truly be able to step back and go, instead of hating them, they need Jesus, and I am broken for them. It says in the book of Matthew that Jesus saw the crowds, the ones that were sick with disease, the ones that were riddled with sin, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It doesn't say that he looked at them and affirmed them in their sinfulness. It doesn't say that he looked at them and was sickened by their sinfulness. It says that he saw them and he was filled with compassion, filled with pity for them. Because he knew what they were going through was incredibly difficult. I want to encourage you. Hate of any kind is not good. Is that a good word? Hate of any kind is not good. It's real easy to point at those who hate us and be like, you're wrong. You shouldn't be doing that. But when hate exists in our heart, we need to deal with it. Now look at the last set of verses and we'll call it a day. David's about to have a really, really good friend here. You ready for this? 2 Samuel 16, verse 9. Here's what it says. It says, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, this is one of David's mighty men, one of his inner circle, said to the king, why should this dog curse my lord the king? Underline dead dog. All throughout scripture, dead, all throughout the first and second Samuel, dead dog was like when they wanted to say something that was, uh, that was of God, but right on the edge, dead, dead dog was like the worst thing you could call somebody, all right, uh, without it being a curse. He looks and says, uh, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Watch this. Let me go over and cut off his head. Underline, let me go over and cut off his head, all right? If you have that friend, by the way, I mean, I'm telling you, for some of you, by the way, who have an ex, okay, and you have that best friend, and you talk to them, and you're like, man, they drive me crazy, and they're like, I'll, I'll get them, all right? I will do it. You ever had that person where you're just like, man, I just somebody should teach them a lesson, and they're like, I'll do it. 
I'll do, I will do that for you, all right? There's no way, all right? Anyway, just the way it goes. That is Abishai here. Abishai is just like, it's ticking me off, man. We're doing this. Plus, you got Abishai doing this also. Abishai is like, hmm, we've been men of blood this entire time. He's, this guy, this one guy who's pelting us with rocks, this one guy who's throwing dirt at us, this one guy that's saying the house of Saul is going to rise again for crying out loud while we're going through this thing with Absalom. I mean, how ignorant could this situation be? And Abishai just goes, can I just can I cut his head off, please? It just make me feel a whole lot better if I could cut his head off. Don't catch, don't miss this. You know who else got his head cut off? Saul. Saul got his head cut off. He goes, can I give him the same fate that this political leader that he wants back in power, he wants his family back in power, can I give him the same fate that he received? Watch what David does. Those people are good for you as long as you reel them in, all right? Look at what happens next. It says, verse 11, then David said to Abishai and to all his officials, underline to all his officials, he lets them all know, for any of you who are so deeply loyal to me that feel this way, he says to all of them, ready? My son, who is my own flesh and blood, is trying to take my life. How much more than this Benjamite? He goes, this is bothering me, but leave him alone. Let him curse, for maybe the Lord's told him so. Maybe the Lord's told him to. And it may be that the Lord will see my distress and repay me with good for the cursing that I have received. Now stop right there for just a minute. David is right in the channel in his relationship with God right now. David comes back and man, I'm telling you, Abishai goes, let me kill him. Let me kill him. He's treating us badly. Let's show him who we are, David. Let's show him that we're more powerful than he is. And David steps back and goes, if the Lord's allowing it, it's supposed to happen. He goes, maybe this is of God that this happened. And then he goes, and maybe God will see my distress in the way that I don't repay hate with hate, that I let the hate stop and die with me. And he says, and maybe God will reward me for the hate that I've taken in. Over and over again, Jesus says, blessed are you when you are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. David receives it, that this guy is just a guy. This troll is just a troll. And he loves Abishai enough to speak the truth to him and reel him in. Look at verse 13. It says, so David and his men continued along the road while Shimei was going along the hillside opposite him, cursing him as he went. You got to picture this. As David walks this way, that guy is right in his face, letting him have it the entire time. <sighs> you got a troll like that in your life? Fight the urge to hate them. They have no power. Because look at what happens in verse 14. This is so cool. When they get to verse 14, it says, The king and all his people with him arrived at their destination exhausted. And there David was refreshed. Watch what the troll does. The troll goes, I got you. I got you. You're not. You're evil. You're wicked. What, we're stopping? We're stopping? We're stopping? I got to go. All right? You know why? Because at the end of the journey... The camp sets up, and they gain strength, and the troll has to go home. It's thousand against one, and eventually the troll flees. The person that we have right here, Abishai, you're taking notes number four. Who can we expect to encounter when God quickly or when God calls us to walk a difficult path? Number four is the hothead, the hothead, someone who is deeply loyal, but who is also harsh. At the end of this. Shimei goes home. 
because he has no place to set up camp. He can't be camping with, the, uh, with this group. He's going to leave eventually, and eventually the time of difficulty will stop. But Abishai, if David allows him in his hate to cut off this guy's head, to follow through with that wickedness, then Abishai then will be one who is in trouble because of his hatred. If you're taking notes, write this down. You're your last little four words to write down. Avoid encouraging misguided loyalty. Avoid encouraging misguided loyalty. No better example of this in movies than Cousin Eddie in National Lampoon, all right? Okay, you remember National Lampoon, whether it was Christmas vacation, Vegas vacation, European vacation. Cousin Eddie, played by Randy Quaid, fantastic character of misguided loyalty. Do you remember the Christmas version? It's one of my favorite ones. In the Christmas deal, you got Clark Griswold, Chevy Chase, the main character, and he's going through a time of difficulty. He thought he was going to get a Christmas bonus. He's basing it off of previous years. And remember, instead of his Christmas bonus, he gets Jam of the Month Club, right? And so he's told the family he's going to build him a swimming pool. He's had a great year. Uh, his numbers were good. And instead, uh, he gets no extra money. And do you remember the scene? I still love it to this day. Because he goes full vent, he's so angry at his boss, says all these things in front of his family, the ones that are closest to him. And what happens after he does that? Cousin Eddie loads up in that beat up old RV camper, and then he drives through Chicago to the boss's downtown home, kidnaps him, and then wraps him up in a bow in his pajamas. Do you remember that? And is kicking him in the rear as he walks him into the house. And all of a sudden, you can see on Chevy Chase's face, Clark's face, it's like, oh no, I'm. I'm getting fired. All right. This is bad. Best case scenario. I'm getting fired. Maybe I'm going to jail because of kidnapping. Well, all of a sudden, do you remember what happens? All of a sudden the FBI busts in, breaks through the windows, destroys the house completely. And there they are. Uh, it ends. The movie ends good, but I'm telling you, there's a lot of trouble that shows up. Don't miss this. When your hot headed person is so loyal to you and you don't reel them in just a little bit, what you're doing is not leadership for them. You've got to love them enough to not full vent hate on your ex, to full vent hate on your boss, where there's not a place for grace at the end. That doesn't mean that you build them up where they don't deserve it, but listen to me. The desire of every believer for anyone who has hated on us or hurt on us is that we would desire that they would come to Christ, that they would be saved that they would repent of their wickedness and be able to spend eternity with God in heaven. I know you may think that sounds like a silly example. You would be surprised. The seat that I sit in here, I probably field more I hate my boss conversations than anything else in counseling out here. Do you know why? Because your job is very, very important to you. Feelings of hatred are not on them. It's on you. If you feel hatred for any human being on this planet, your boss... Your ex-spouse, you feel hatred for a brother or sister, you feel hatred for a parent. That hatred is on you. The sin they've committed is on them. But the sin of hatred, it's a generational sin that's passed down. And you have the ability to say, Lord, I pity them. And you know what? These people that I've entrusted my life to that are willing to cut off somebody else's head for me, I got to let them know the Lord is still in control. And when we do that, the hate stops and God gets the glory. Begs our final question today. Is there someone you need to reel in? Is there someone you need to reel in? Someone that is so much on your side, it has become ungodly. 
I appreciate you listening today. Man, these passages from David are just so special. The Absalom study was the worst of David, and now we're getting to see him walk uh, in the light. And it's the best of David. He truly is the man after God's own heart in this passage. I pray that the Lord would teach you something through it today. Let's bow our heads for prayer.